So today we're going to begin a series that I've been looking forward to starting pretty much all year. I know this is something that God has been wanting me to do um, since the beginning of the year. And it's going to be about the Holy Spirit. And we're going to start out this morning by talking about in the beginning. And we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. If you want to turn there in your Bible, it should be fairly easy to find right in the front of the book. And as I was thinking about this sermon, I was remembering when I was a child and I would attend worship services at St. Mary's Lutheran Church in Kenosha, I noticed that everything was done in a very uh, ritualistic way. So much so that I had pretty much the sermon memorized by, or not the, the sermon, the service, pretty much memorized, memorized by uh, probably age eight. I wouldn't even have to pick up the hymnal anymore and so except to sing the songs. I remember walking into church or seeing the worship song pages up there and they had little block numbers on the pillars so we knew where to go in the hymnal and mark that off with our bulletin before church. We'd go through the brief order of confession and forgiveness found on page 57 of the hymnal and go through that. And everything was very, very pre-planned, very set in stone. Um, it's just the way that particular denomination does things. I'm not criticizing it. It's just what they do. They have a very exact calendar that comes down from the de denomination that says exactly which songs to sing, which sermon topic to preach on, which sermon scriptures to read, and how the service is to be planned. Everything is very, very laid out like that. As part of this plan, occasionally they would go through something um, called the Apostles' Creed. Occasionally, one of the older pastors might need, use the Nicene Creed, uh, which is a little bit more in-depth, but it's usually the Apostles' Creed. Anybody familiar with that? The Apostles' Creed? Had to memorize it for confirmation, maybe? Um, I put it on the back of your bulletin if you're curious about it. It is a good thing to memorize. It just kind of cements what we believe as Christians. And if you look at the Apostles' Creed on the back of your bulletin, you'll notice that there's a mention of the Father in the beginning. The middle is all about Jesus. talks all about Jesus. And then there's one line toward the end about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a major emphasis in most denominations. And we want to fix that this morning in, in talking about the Holy Spirit in depth. And as part of being confirmed, we actually had to memorize and recite in front of a pastor two of the four creeds available. I chose the Apostles' Creed, since it was the easiest one to do, the shortest one, and the Nicene Creed, the one that was actually written at the Council of Nicaea at 325 A.D. And the Nicene Creed does do one thing a little bit better than the Apostles' Creed, in that it describes the Holy Spirit in, in much better detail. When it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And through the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. And he has spoken through the prophets. See, I still have it memorized. And soon after being confirmed, my parents didn't make me go to church anymore. So I stopped going unless I was up north with my grandparents. And their church was absolutely non-negotiable. Every Sunday they were in church. But aside from my time up north, I spent the next nine years or so living apart from God and his church. Didn't want to have anything to do with it. Just saw it was boring. I can sleep in on Sundays. I don't have to go to church. I, I just didn't want to have anything to do with it. And then I got a job at a factory where I was sat next to a guy who you, most of you here have met him, my friend Kevin. He's come here to preach 
when I first came up here. Um, he sat next to me and pretty much evangelized me into the faith. And he started doing it by inviting me to his church to an Easter program that they had on a Friday night. So I went there, and they did a really good job with it. I mean, they had an almost 1,000-member church at the time. They had a lot of money. They, they did a really good job, and I thought it was really well done. And I let them talk me into coming to church on Sunday. So here I am, Lutheran boy, kind of maybe a little bit Catholic. I used to call myself Catherine because I was kind of crossed between Catholic and Lutheran. Um, going into this church on Sunday, this independent Pentecostal church. And I went from this extreme liturgical kind of thing where it's always the same thing into a Pentecostal service that was just completely, in my view at that time, out of control. I mean, you had people dancing, you had people waving flags, you had people waving their hands, holding their hands. I thought they were asking a question. I didn't know what the, the heck that was about. And then some guy stood up, gave a prophecy, and then ran clapping his hands with his eye closed three laps around the church. I didn't know what the heck was going on with this. And I'm thinking, okay, my friend belongs to some type of weird cult thing going on here. This is what they warned me about with the Assemblies of God and the Lutheran Church. And the one thing, though, that kept me coming back is I felt a presence in that church I had never felt before. I had never truly experienced God. It was probably my fault. I'm not criticizing the Lutheran Church. It was probably all me, my sin, and my own hang-ups that I wouldn't experience sin or experience the Holy Spirit in, in their church but in this church, I just had this overwhelming weight pressing into the deepest parts of me. The first time I really experienced God, and I felt, I felt it, was, it was terrifying, yet I was really drawn to experience more. I felt like Moses where the presence of God fell and deep darkness um, came down, and it, yet everybody else was terrified and running away from it, but Moses went toward it. And that was my, my view at that time before I even knew that scripture. That's just how I felt. I just had to get closer to this thing. And this is my first conscious experience with the Holy Spirit. This mysterious figure that we had only touched on in confirmation classes now became very real to me. And I had no idea what to do with that or what it meant. And thank God I had Kevin, I had Boyd, I had Pastor Claire to explain all this to me because I, I kept coming back because I wanted more of it. And I tell you all that because today we're going to be beginning that deep study of the Holy Spirit. And as I was praying and, and, and seeking God about what to speak and teach on this year, God impressed me or impressed upon me that I haven't talked a lot about that in the past. And he impressed upon me that this is the mo one of the most important things that Jesus restored to us by his death on the cross. The ability of the Holy Spirit to come and live within us and to be upon us in power, especially during the time we are living in right now. So this morning we're going to be getting a study on the Holy Spirit. It's going to last a few weeks, and we're going to build a firm foundation of who He is before we talk about what He does. So let's open in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we come before You this morning. 
And we admit, Lord, that we are a needy people. We need every bit of power, every bit of presence, and every bit of your provision to even just survive in these last days. Lord God, I ask that you take today's message, use it to build a foundation for us to live on, to be able to trust in your Holy Spirit and allow this third person of the Trinity to become important in our lives. Father God, I ask this in your name. Amen. So in Genesis chapter 1, we're going to see the first mention in the Bible of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see it in the beginning. Now I do want to make a quick note about the book of Genesis in particular and, um, and generally about the Hebrew language. Moses wrote this down. He wrote it from a combination of writings that had been passed down to him as well as their oral tradition. Uh, and Moses compiled the, the book of Genesis in the Hebrew language. Now, the Hebrew language is considered to be a Near Eastern language, meaning it rides a line between how people in the Far East or Asia think and how we in the West communicate and, and think. And the difference is, when you re read a language, particularly Chinese-Japanese, they use their language to build a word picture in their minds about what you're talking about. You can even see it in the way they write their language. It's, it's, it's very ornate pictures, isn't it? That's the way that they think. That's the way that they communicate there. We're in, in uh, the Western languages is we just go line upon line. It's very linear where we're going to put truth upon truth upon truth upon truth where they're going to draw a picture of the truth. And you have to keep that in mind when you read the Old Testament and let it draw that image in your mind. Now in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. So starting here and throughout the Old Testament, we see that the Holy Spirit was instrumental in creation. In fact, although not clearly expressed here, all three members of the Godhead were there when the Father said, let there be light. And you may look at that and say, well, where was Jesus? Well, he wasn't in the Genesis account, but you plainly see it like in Colossians where it says that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in, things, in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then you also have John 1 verse 1 where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, so you see, all three people in the Trinity were there during creation. 
And as I was writing the rough draft of today's message, I was doing it at work probably about 2.33 in the morning. And after I discharged my last patient, it occurred to me the, the importance of the last few verses here. It says that Jesus is the light of the world, right? How did God start the creation process? He said, let there be light. God shouted Jesus into the eternal, didn't he? That just made me jump up when I, was, when I was writing this in my workstation. I almost said amen right there in the middle of the ER. It got me really excited. But getting back to the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1 verses, verse 2, the Bible says that the Spirit was hovering over the surface of the water. And there are two ways to translate that Hebrew word for hover. And the first is trembling and the other is fluttering. Anyone here ever worked around high voltage electricity? Been around it at all? One of my first car accidents as a firefighter was in Bristol. When I was on, the, before I moved up here, I was on Bristol Fire Department. We went to a car versus utility pole accident, and the wire was laying on top of the car. There wasn't arcing, it wasn't jumping, it wasn't, you know, doing that Hollywood thing of, of looking like it was live and ready to electrocute everybody that came near it. So we approached it very slowly, approached it in a single file line. So my lieutenant was in the front, and all of a sudden he just held up his hand and said, stop. And I'm like, why are we stopping? I said, it looks like, I mean, the wire's not moving, it looks like it tripped the, the breaker up on the pole. He goes, take one more small step. I took another small step and all of a sudden my feet are vibrating. He said, your fire boots are made to do this. Your fire boots have two layers of metal in them. He goes, it's primarily there to keep your feet from stepping on something sharp and it going through your boot and stabbing your foot. The other reason is for this very moment right now, that vibration you're feeling is high powered electricity going into the ground and, uh, and trying to go up through you. And it's giving you a warning, don't take another step. That sense of being that close to that kind of raw power being held temporarily at bay reminded me of the way that the Holy Spirit was hovering over the surface of the water. The Holy Spirit was like a race car. You know, a race car at the, at the starting line. It's sitting there revving and revving and revving. It just, it's waiting for the green light. In this case, the Holy Spirit's waiting for God to say, let there be light so it can be released into creation and make everything that is um, now. And it also matches up with the New Testament description of the Holy Spirit, one of which is the Greek word dunamis, where we get our modern word dynamite from. So that explosive power of the Holy Spirit was seen at creation and, and contributing to um, everything that we see now being made. And the next place we see the Holy Spirit is in the act of creation of humanity. So now we're going to get into an important theological concept called the Imago Dei. Everybody ever heard of that before? That's good. And you learn, we can all learn something today. The term Imago Dei is a phrase that comes from Latin. It means image of God. You've heard about the image of God being stamped on humanity before. And when a new baby is born, most people, usually wives, will immediately start saying that, oh, the baby, they look kind of like their mother, or they have their father's eyes, or their mother's ears, or, 
or their father's mouth, they see similarities between a parent and their offspring. And that term imago Dei means something very similar. In fact, it's, it's seen in all of the three monotheistic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. It's all part of their statements of faith, that humanity was made in the image and likeness of God. So it's a truth seen throughout the major religions of the world. And it was part of creation that you see in Genesis chapter 1, if you go down to verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God made mankind in his own image, and in the image of God he created them, Male and female, he created them. What we see in Genesis is God the Father speaking to God the Son and the Holy Spirit about what he is about to do next. And how he did it and why it's important for us here is seen in verse 7 of Genesis 2. And I want you to pay very particular attention to something here as I read it. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and... This is what I want to focus on. Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. I'm going to break this down a little bit. Remember how I said that Genesis um, is written in the Hebrew language, and the Hebrew language paints a word picture? That's why I made this point earlier, because this is what's trying to be established in our minds right here. That word for breathe in the Hebrew is, not, is nashawa. It's used in one other place in the Bible, in Ezekiel, to describe the exact same thing here. God breathing into something that is not yet alive and creating life. In Ezekiel, it was the valley of dry bones. Here, it was a formation of Adam. Now, I know there's a lot of talk about how the different creatures on earth are kind of smart. Like you can train a chimpanzee to do things. You can train dolphins to look for mines. You can train just different animals to do different things. <coughs> Excuse me. But none of them have true higher reasoning skills. Let me give you an example. One of the smartest domesticated animals we have is a dog. Right? You can train a dog to do all kinds of cool stuff. But you ever put them out on a chain in the yard? for a while, and all of a sudden you hear barking, you hear whining, you go out there, they found the one pole in the yard, and they wrap themselves all around, and they're sitting there going, ah, 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 like this, right? They're choking themselves to death on their chain. Now, we don't go out there and say, hey, dummy, just walk backwards, or turn around, walk this way, you unwrap yourself and think. Dog has no idea. He can't look at this and say, oh, yeah, if I just go this way, I can, I can like, unhang myself here. Animals outside of humanity don't have that ability to solve complex problems like that. It's only humanity that can use reason, logic, and truly problem solve. And the early Hebrews recognized this truth. In fact, the book of Job, one of the oldest books in the Bible, if not the oldest book, Job is having a theological debate with his friends. And one of the younger men, Elihu, who's one of the youngest men there finally stood up for truth when he said this. 
In Job 32.8 it says, It is the spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty. Look at that. The breath of the Almighty that gives him understanding. A few verses later in, in chapter 33 verse 4, he says that the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So even back then, they saw that there was something that happened when God breathed that life into Adam and through him Eve that made us different than anything else in all creation. And I bring this up to show you the Imago Dei, the image of God at that point was stamped on us as the Holy Spirit was breathed into us at creation. Do you know the other thing that is talked about being God-breathed in the Bible? That one's in the Greek language, theonoustos. Anybody know what that is? God breathed the word of God. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correcting, for training, for rebuking, and all righteousness. It says that also in the Bible. That Holy, the Holy Spirit at creation imparted that divine essence that gives us our higher mental abilities, that spirit that is within us that is different from all creation. And this is carried on throughout the ages and has been imparted even to you and me. And finally, that Imago Dei is seen in our created nature. God has eternally revealed himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three parts of a whole Godhead. Humanity is also revealed in three parts. Our spirit, which is our primary created nature, the body that the spirit inhabits, and the soul that is created from the union of the two. Our spirit was never designed to exist apart from a body, which is why at the resurrection we get a new one. Everybody wonders, why do we have to need a new body? Well, that's the way we were made, to exist within a body. So some of you may be thinking, oh, that's great, John, but what happened? Why, are, why isn't humanity showing the image of God within them anymore? It seems like we do everything we can to squash it and, and efface it in our time. Well, Genesis chapter 3 happens. The fall of humanity through the first sin committed by Adam and Eve. And humanity's willful sin against God had some consequences to it. And you read about it in Genesis 3, verse 7. After they eat of the forbidden fruit, it says that the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. Now earlier in Genesis, it said that up to that point, man and woman had been running around physically naked in front of each other and never been ashamed. It said that they, they, shame was not part of their programming. It wasn't part of their nature. That is, until they chose to rebel against God's command. Then they unlocked a side of their souls that was never intended for them to access. Everybody has a smartphone, right? You know you can jailbreak this thing or root it, depending if it's Android or, or, uh, or Apple. Jailbreak is Apple, root is is Android. And what that does is it gives you the full functionality of the operating system of that, of that um, phone. A lot of people do it if you're kind of a nerd and want to get a little bit more performance out of your phone, you'll do that. The thing is, though, is that when you do that, 
you have a very high risk of what's called bricking the phone, which means you make it absolutely worthless. It'll just shut off and never turn back on again, never work right. That's a very basic way of describing what happened to Adam and Eve. They tried to jailbreak their spirit and ended up bricking it, ended up ruining it, ended up effacing that imago, that imago day within them. And through giving in to Satan's temptations, their eyes were open to things that humanity was never intended to have access to. And it changed their operating system. It changed them at their very core to now desire those evil things. And that's what the Bible is saying when it says their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened to the other side of things that God never wanted them to have to look at. And the other part here is the fact that they said they were naked. Well, we've already established they were physically naked up until that point, and they didn't think anything of it. And the Bible doesn't implicitly say this in Genesis, but you can see it elsewhere in the Bible. Is my opinion, at this point, the Holy Spirit who had been in them and upon them had left. They were seen for the first time with only human eyes, and their spiritual eyes had been shut. We have an example of this in Ezekiel chapter 10. In Ezekiel 10, the, the prophet is prophesying against the evil of the nation and the upcoming judgment because of the sin of the people and especially inside of the temple, which was the church of that time. And God gives Ezekiel a glimpse into the spiritual realm where he can watch the Holy Spirit leave a temple he is no longer welcome in. In Ezekiel 10, 18, it says, The glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. If you continue reading in Ezekiel, you'll see the nation refuses to repent, and the Spirit of God leaves and leaves the temple all the way until it can't be seen anymore. There's a second um, proof of what happened in Genesis regarding them being naked is what's seen in, in a picture of the saints in heaven. You'll see glory restored. In Revelation 7.13 it says, One of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? Verse 14, I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the Lamb. Put these two verses together, and we see why they were naked. The Holy Spirit that had been intimately connected with them up until that point was gone because of their sin. And for the first time, they had to face their father without the covering of the Holy Spirit. So that was the Holy Spirit in the beginning. And as we prepare to close the message today, I want to bring just a little bit of a New Testament perspective on what happened in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to consult a subject matter expert on this topic. His name's Jesus. What did Jesus say about this idea of being properly clothed in the Holy Spirit, he gave a parable to emphasize this. 
In Matthew 22, Jesus tells of a king given a great banquet probably referring to the wedding supper of the Lamb that we get to experience after the rapture. The king arrives and notices some of the people there are not wearing wedding garments. So what did the king do about this? The king ordered them tied up and thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a picture of a soul that refuses to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ and therefore is not clothed in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was part of our created nature. And that is what Jesus won for us again when he came back. You can see it in the Gospel of John where it says he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. That was the Holy Spirit returning within them. Then Acts chapter 2 comes. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them in flames of fire. That double filling of the Holy Spirit. So not only is the Holy Spirit living within us, restoring that Imago Dei, but He is upon us in power. Like it was in the beginning. <coughs> 